praise you, O Lord. We give honor and glory to your name, O God, as we recount your praiseworthy deeds this morning. We have sang of them today in these songs that glorify you for your mighty work in redemption. By the purchased power of Christ's own blood, our sins were atoned for. When his blood was shed on Calvary, our sins were washed away. The elect celebrate this morning freedom from the ties that bind and from the constricting power of spiritual death that has cursed us since Eden. We thank you, Lord, that in you we have received the resurrection life of regeneration, filling us, Lord, sanctifying us as the Spirit now indwells us, perfecting us unto the image of Christ our Lord. And we look forward, Lord Jesus, to reconvening this worship time in glory one day with all of those that have enjoyed your redemption that have gone before and all those who will join us in progress so we might worship you in spirit and in truth without distraction, without delay, without pause, and with nothing but holiness and reverence spilling from the lips of the redeemed. We thank you, Lord, this morning that you have not left us in this world without means to perfect us unto your glory. We thank you that you have not given up on us, though there are so many areas in our life which lag behind, Lord, where we ought to be as Christians. We thank you that as we open your word, you can, through the transforming power of its immortal, uh, its, its immortal truth, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray that you would do so today as the gospel is preached. Lord, it is your work that we rely on today. It is not the voice that proclaims, Lord, or our power to understand that affects anything unto, Lord, the benefit of the hearer, but only your spirit using the foolishness of preaching and the power of your holy word to conform us to the image of Christ our Lord. And we pray that this would happen today, that we might be equipped for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God for the opportunity to look, so clo or to look closely at His precious Word today and to do so trusting that the Holy Spirit will reveal it to our hearts and translate it into action and into works unto the praise of His great name. I would encourage you to open up your scriptures to Matthew 26 this morning as we will consider the close of this chapter and the denial of Peter I'm sorry, the, where Peter denies Jesus, so Peter's denial of Jesus. These are verses 69 through 75 in Matthew 26. As you're turning there, let me give you a title for this message today. Simply this, man's weakness and gospel power. Man's weakness is featured in these verses, but also gospel power. The power of grace to overcome our sin is only more manifest when we see in candid clarity how grievously each of us, as represented here by Peter, transgressed the law of God. If the power of grace can transform a wicked heart such as Peter's and a wicked heart such as yours and mine, Christ is due that much more praise today. And so let us consider His Word. Stand with me if you're able, out of reverence for the Word, and let us consider these verses today. Again, Matthew 26, 69 through 75, we have these immortal words. 
Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he, Peter, denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said, she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly uh, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, 75. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Luke's gospel provides some supernatural behind-the-scenes perspective on these moments that are featured in all four gospels. All four gospels record the denial of the representative disciple, Peter. There are two men in Scripture I often think of as representative believers. Peter is one, Paul is another. They have the privilege, and also in some ways, uh, perhaps the not-so-great privilege of their dirty laundry and their life being an open book for you and I to look at. The inside-out nature of the record of the, inside, the soul of both Peter and Paul are prominent in the New Testament Scriptures. I believe this is the case because each one of them are a classic prototype experience with the gospel. Think of Paul, for instance. Has there ever been a demonstration of God's grace so mighty as to overcome the sin of this man who turned his heart and his actions so grievously against the early church? Of course, the answer is yes, in that, in one sense, we are all just as caught in sin as anyone else. However, few manifest it so grievously as to persecute and be complicit in the death of the Lord's own, his children. Such was Paul. And we have his story portrayed in Scripture for us to look at and to see just how powerful the grace of God is. It can transform the heart of a murderous rebel to one who would lay down his life to champion the gospel all over the globe. In the case of Peter, we have an impetuous man whose personality, unpredictable as it is, might stand loyally ready to swing the sword as a one-man zealot army on behalf of his Savior in one moment and then, I don't know, 30 minutes, an hour and a half later, he's denying the one who he confessed was the Son of God just weeks prior. What does Christ have to work with? Not much, it would seem. But his work on the heart of one like Peter manifests the transforming power of the grace of God to take one who is so personally unqualified to champion the great news of Christ as Savior under hardships and turn him in to a burning ember and a mighty 
testimony to the power of God and an apostle who would stand firm in the faith and champion the gospel over this globe unto even his own martyrdom and death. As to the denial of Peter, we learn that this event is in fact no surprise as we understand the sovereignty of God in Scripture, but we have a window of opportunity into his decree again. It had been the topic of prior discussion in the spiritual realm. Much like the prologue of Job, which provides a window into the sovereign decree of the Almighty, we discover that in the case of Peter, discussions prior to this event included negotiations by the devil himself for the soul of the representative disciple, Peter. You remember in the beginning of Job, before he embarks upon his great trial, hard to even fathom the physical abuse and everything that he went through, that there was a conversation in the spiritual realm where Satan comes before the presence of God, as it were, and says, you know, I haven't afflicted Job in a way that would really truly test his faith. I'll bet you, in so many words, could get him to deny you. As God tells him, have you considered my servant Job? He knows that Job's faith will stand the test. Why? Because God had prayed for him, as it were. He had called him out. He had interceded on his behalf. Remember our text last week? Who is it that atones for our iniquities? Is it us? No. When iniquities prevail against us, when sin conquers us and holds us captive, it is He, it is you alone, O Lord, who atone for our transgressions. Psalm 65, 3. He goes on, the psalmist, and saying, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. It so happened that the Lord chose Job. He chose Peter. He chose Paul to draw them near, to bring them close, to dwell in his courts. And we see the evidence of this in Scripture. Luke 22, 31-32 records a conversation of which I spoke of earlier. Jesus turns to Peter at that, at that time named Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. As this moment prophesied unfolds, that is the turning in denial of Peter from Christ, we can expect that just as powerful we'll see the reinstatement of Peter as God grants him repentance, and we do see that in the course of these events, but the events of Jesus' trial demonstrate dichotomies in the meantime that sharpen our view of the gospel through the lens of human weakness and sin and through the lens of the explosive power of grace. Consider these dichotomies or, seeming, or uh, seemingly contrasting ideas. First of all, Christ prays three times to the Father in verses 36 to 46 as his disciples sleep. They cannot tarry with him even one hour, even upon repeated prompting of God in flesh, Christ their Lord and Master, they cannot even be coaxed to stay awake even one hour. Meanwhile, he prays three times repeatedly through the, net, the night that the cup would be removed from him. That if it were 
God's will, that another way could be made that the cup of God's wrath might pass from him. Meanwhile, or just a little later on, Peter wakes up from his slumber only to deny Jesus three times as his Savior suffers that very cup at the hands of sinners. Secondly, consider this dichotomy. Jesus lays down his life in order to justify sinners and make them his own. Meanwhile, in this account, Peter in his sin denies his master, trying to spare his own life. This is the wickedness of sin contrasted against the sacrificial power and price of the gospel. Thirdly, Peter denied his Lord before men to save himself. But later on, something changes. In his own ministry, he will confess his Lord at the cost of his own life in hopes of saving the lost. That is the transforming, explosive power of grace manifest in the life of a believer. Peter, who once denied his Lord before men to save himself, will later confess his Lord at the cost of his own life in hopes of saving the lost. Final dichotomy that strikes me as we read this account. Peter's grief leads him to repentance. Next week we'll cover this concept in greater detail from 2 Corinthians. There is a godly grief that leads to repentance. And when Peter weeps upon denying his master, it is evidence of that godly grief. And it leads him to repentance. Meanwhile, turn over one page in your Bible. Just a few verses later, Judas' remorse leads him to destruction. The explosive power of grace and the manifest judgment deserving of sin and those contrasting accounts are dramatic. They are graphically pictured. They are sharp. They are clear. Theological truths are evident in this microcosm. Truths including the sovereignty of God, the sin of man, and the salvation purchased by Christ our Lord. Consider this morning a heading, Theological Truths, illustrated by Peter's denial under three main points today. First of all, the Word of God attested. The theological truth of the Word of God manifestly demonstrated to be reliable to the jot and tittle is illustrated in this account of Peter's denial. Second theological truth we'll consider today, the captive will of man. You know, that age, that old age, or that uh, uh, debate through the ages of how much, you know, free will does man have uh, versus the free will of God and so on. A lot of times that discussion is fueled by a desire, I would say, you know, the greater 99% out of 100 of such discussions are motivated more by a desire for man to think of himself as retaining autonomy rather than anything else. But as we see the scriptures unfolding, we find that yes, man has a will, but it is captive to certain influences. And in the case of Peter, never was there a man more resolved to stand loyal to his master. And yet in the same moment, almost the same breath, he failed to do so. Why? Because he was not sufficient in enough his own will to stand for anything. 
He would fall in the day of adversity if the Holy Spirit did not indwell him, and that is evident here. Thirdly, the theological truth illustrated by Peter's denial, let us consider the wrath of God atoned. The wrath of God atoned. The wrath of God that is satisfied in Christ and the cup that he took to his lips. First of all, the word of God attested. Again, uh, Matthew 26, 69, now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were Jesus, were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. He goes on from this denial to confess with an oath again that he does not know the man, speaking of Jesus. And thirdly, adding insult to injury, he invokes a curse, he swears profusely, he says again, I do not know the man. This is the record of Peter's great sin in this instance. It is notable in the text that this account is preceded by commandments, by imperatives, by clear direction, as to the law of God in the case such as this. There are preceding commandments and instructions and imperatives applicable in this very case that Christ laid out in His teaching in the book of Matthew. It is important to note these lest we think of these circumstances and temptations sort of sneaking up on Peter as if he were unprepared, almost not fair that he would be held accountable for such a thing after all. There's a lot of pressure and stress on him in this moment. Can't we account for that and give him a pass? No, these moments were anticipated. They were addressed directly. The law of God is clear and perfection is the standard. Let us consider, first of all, Matthew 5. Turn back with me to the Sermon on the Mount. You might have asked yourself as we studied this text some years ago now, why was it important that Jesus would cover in his example of the law of God established and always standing as the ethical norm of righteousness for all persons in all generations, why is it important that he cover lawful oaths and vows? Well, one reason is because there would be opportunity in the near future for his disciples to make good use of these instructions. Listen, Matthew 5, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Peter had listened to these words. The disciples had heard Christ expound the law. He knew firsthand from the lips of the Messiah that abuse of oaths and vows were criminal before the Lord. Yet in this moment of sin, in his great transgression, in his denial, what does Peter do? Exactly what Matthew 5 forbids. He denies that he even knows Jesus with an oath. Furthermore, he invokes a curse upon himself and begins to swear, I do not know the man. The word of God is attested. Christ had given directions, directives. And now as Peter is faced in this trial, he finds himself in violation of the law of God. 
We find in this prototype picture, this representative disciple, the great need for all of our sins to be atoned. I guarantee, under same conditions, you or I, our strength and resolve and personality would be equally as feeble and frail as Peter's was. There's no way we would stand. The only way we could stand under such circumstances is if the Spirit gave us word and wisdom at the time when we are drugged before the courts, and we'll see that promise in due course in Scripture as well. Furthermore, not only would we not stand, but there are times when we ourselves have declared in so many words, so many actions, and so much posturing to a world that inquires that we do not know the man, that we do not know Christ. There are many times in our lives where our attitude, our decision, our demeanor, our behavior, our answer to a question, our interaction in a conversation can only be explained by the presupposition of right now, I'm acting like, positioning myself as if I do not really know Christ. You are guilty of this. I am guilty of this. Yet God, in His grace, atones for this sin of denial. And thank the Lord that in our moment of weakness, we can plead as Peter did in tearful grief, O Lord, cover even this sin of mine when I have done less than a stellar job of declaring my fealty, my loyalty to you. Matthew chapter 10, turn over a few pages with me. Jesus had not left his disciples unprepared for these moments. As I mentioned before, consider these verses, adding to what we've just read. Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say the conditions under which this imperative will be tested. He says, do, you not th- or do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. In other words, acknowledging me before men will be extremely difficult. It will come at the cost in some cases of martyrdom and other cases of persecution. And nearly every Christian's experience at least the scorning of those who yet remain at enmity with the Lord. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And notice verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The message here in context is, even if it costs you the closest of relationships, If it costs you father, mother, if it costs you son or daughter, you must not deny me before men. The relationship that Christ has with us is most important and formative and indispensable of all, and upon it all meaningful relationships are established, and it is the only foundation of any meaningful human communion, any meaningful human fellowship and relationship. This is the message. So Christ had prepared Peter 
with these words. Yet Peter in his sin had forgotten them, had transgressed them. Again in Matthew 26, it's not one of his own family. The sword isn't to his throat. He isn't being held for questioning. It's just an innocent question by a servant girl. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. The pressure was too much for him. And in the face of the inquiry of this mere servant girl and the distant recesses of this scene, he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Matthew 10, 16, turn back a few verses. How are we to stand? How is Peter to stand under such conditions? Again, Jesus had not left his disciples unprepared. Listen to what he declares. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Is this not what was happening in Matthew 26? Christ himself had been delivered over to the court. And even if their own life was on trial, their own position, the disciples were to stand in the midst of this adversity, recognizing that Christ had sent them out. In some cases, it would appear almost to be devoured by the circumstances. Frightening odds as they were just one man against the public court of public opinion or the powerful magistrates or religious leaders of the day. He says, beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Verse 18, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brothers and sisters, in the day of adversity, when we rely on ourselves, we trip over our words and we deny our master and we fall into the trap of Peter. When we have great anxiety and care more about life and limb and ourselves than we do about the glory of the Lord, when the pressure's on, we cave and we prove ourselves to be disloyal. But conversely, by the power of God's Spirit residing in us, we become prepared for events such as this. And when the pressure's on, the gospel comes out. And this was the calling of Peter and the other disciples. Later in his ministry, as I briefly remarked, we see examples of this. Peter and John are brought before the temple leaders and they are whipped and beaten. And they are charged, no longer bring this message and it's as if they can't wait to get out on the street. And I imagine the first thing out of their mouth as the doors clang behind them is praise the Lord. For unto him who has counted us worthy to share in the fellowship of his sufferings for his name's sake. And they continue to preach the gospel unabated by the threat of persecution. This is the difference that the Spirit inside us makes. God's word is attested in that these circumstances were anticipated in the scriptures. Christ had gave instructions for events such as this. Not only this, generally speaking, in principle, do we have the word of God attested, but we also have event-specific prophecy. 
We have these preceding imperatives and we have event-specific prophecy. Just briefly, Christ had prophesied in chapter 16 what was going to happen to him. should not come as a surprise when the events begin to unfold in Matthew 26. Because he has told his disciples in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We see even here, though, that uh, Peter begs to differ with him, and he says, Peter takes him aside, begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You see, Peter doesn't quite understand what's going on. Jesus turned to Peter and, and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Peter must have been extremely confused at this statement. Peter had basically just said, over my dead body, they will kill you. I will lead a zealot uprising, and I'll be the last man standing swinging my sword, and I will die before my Messiah is touched by the uh, evil forces and by the enemies that would like to accost him. Peter's personal resolve and his zealot uh, faithfulness to the Lord, at least as it was recorded in these moments, was insufficient for the time when he was truly tested and tried. So these events were specifically prophesied. Even more specific than what I just read, not just that Jesus would die, but also that his disciples would leave him. Christ had prophesied in our same chapter, as you recall, 26:31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. As these events in Matthew 27, 69 through 75, as Peter is denying Christ, as they are taking place, the word of Christ is being attested. It is proven true. He is being struck and the flock is being scattered, meaning his disciples are abandoning him. Verse 32 says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, listen to the specificity of the moment prophesied. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. No event in glory, no event before the sovereign throne of God is ever learned. There is nothing for the court of heaven to learn. Why? Because everything is ordained by God's sovereign decree and nothing happens by any force or causal system independent of His ultimate knowledge and ultimate control. Nothing surprises heaven. Here we see this evidenced in the text when it is prophesied that all will fall away on Christ's account. That this is for a purpose. The word of God is fulfilled and the cup of Christ's sufferings must include, it must include the abandonment of those who are closest to him when the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. And this will all happen very precisely before the rooster crows. In, prophesying, in Jesus' prophecy of his own death, he also directed his, his disciples 
to the truth that they themselves would fall away. And fully knowing that this was true, it was not enough for them to be resolved to change course. The Word of God is attested in our text today. The first theological truth illustrated by Peter's denial. Let us move to the second, the captive will of man. As I've mentioned in two, verse, two sections prior, or one at least, that Peter's personal resolve, his prior resolve, was not enough for him to stand in the day of adversity. Though he had said, even though all leave you and deny you, I will not, I will sooner die than leave your side. We find that he is running scared in our passage today. In chapter 26, in these verses that we've just read, right up to the point where Christ himself is betrayed, Peter says again, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Peter was a man who understood what it was like to set your mind upon a goal and to work to that end. Peter understood the power of raw, of, of just raw resolve or ambition. He was an individual who thought, if I can pull myself up, if there's bootstraps to grab, I will pull them and I will be just fine. I can find a way to get through, to navigate the difficulties of life. You can sense it in his responses. This sort of gritty outlook and individualism, this rugged nature of self-sufficiency was likely forged in his own vocation and the surroundings and the way he grew up as a ruddy fisherman depending on the sea to give him food. And if he doesn't yank those nets in, if there are no fish in there, he will go hungry the next week and so he casts them again. And by his resolve, staying up late into the night and dragging those nets out of the waters, Peter the fisherman learned in his philosophy of reality, set your mind upon something, say persistent, just do it, and sooner or later it will produce results. Peter knew how to set his will upon something in order to assure a certain end. What Peter did not realize at this point is a theological truth, however, that the will of man is captive to our sin. There is no possible way that a man who is dead in transgressions can will his way towards holiness. There is no possible way for a man who knows only the bitterness and the depravity of poison under his tongue like an asp to bite on something and have it be totally safe. In other words, a snake's bite will always be poisonous, as Romans tells us. And so a man's actions and will before he is transformed by the power of a sovereign God will always be poisonous. There is no way for Peter to will himself into righteousness, to will himself into loyalty, to by the power of mere resolve stand in the day of adversity, to be found faithful to his Lord when the pressure is on just by trusting his personality. Peter had professed that Christ himself was the Lord and the Son of God. And he had resolved in, in himself to stand by him no matter the cost. But Peter had a misconception. He did not realize that it is the Spirit of God alone that grants us the power to do so. It is interesting. The first command that Christ gave his disciples is what? 
follow me. And so they did. Peter is still attempting to earlier in our text today or before our text today. Notice in verse 57, when those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered, notice this note in the text, verse 58, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Note that phrase, following him, that is, Peter is following Christ at a distance. Peter begins to drag his feet as a disciple. He is falling back, and you can almost hear him processing in his mind, I'm still following my master, I'm still following my master, but he is slowing down. His master is in chains before him, you know, several paces, maybe several hundred yards, being led to the court of Caiaphas. And while his master is standing trial, I'm still following, I'm still following him, Peter finally rests in the courtyard, a safe distance from the proceedings. Now before we judge Peter too harshly, it's easy to find in these actions a despicable hesitancy, a disloyalty as far as they go. But let me ask this question, let us ask this question of the text. Where are the other disciples? It would appear that Peter is all alone following Christ, even at this distance. Likely they had all scattered much sooner than Peter. Remember, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Far be it for me to be scattered, I will follow. They all leave and Peter's still following, slower and slower, keeping his distance, dragging his feet. Likely all the disciples had scattered at this point. Peter, no doubt, determined to be the exception to this impulse and prove himself loyal in spite of Jesus' ominous prophecy, continued to tail him, albeit from a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest, where the scene of our text unfolds, as it were, spiritually speaking, this is a picture of his heart. He is following slower and slower at the point where Jesus is tried. And what is the scene? The scene is false witnesses encouraged to testify against him. If there was ever a moment when his disciples ought to have stood up as witnesses to his power, to his authority, to his miracles, to his righteousness, to his sinlessness, to his compassion, to his message, to his gospel, to the reality of his kingdom come and his will being unfolded and the prophecies of the Old Testament coming true and this man born of a virgin interrupting history with the power of Almighty God prophesied from ages before, now was the time and no one is there. No one is there to testify in his behalf. The only ones who speak up are those who in blatant violation to the law bear false witness against the one who created them in the first place. Again, they bear false witness against the one who knit them together in their mother's womb. They bear false witness against the one who breathed life into their very lungs and who sustained the atoms that constituted their being moment by moment as they spoke up and said, crucify him, crucify him. Explosive 
grace. The grace of our God, the long-suffering and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who could at a moment's beck and summon 12 legions of angels to destroy the naysayers before they ever spoken up is featured in this story. And there among them, we find ourselves in our own sin before we come to Christ. We are reminded in these dramatic moments the power of His blood to ransom and redeem and to change the heart and attitude of one who was once a rebel to a loyal follower of Christ. The will of man is captive to sin until a miracle occurs. And later in the gospel, later in the record, especially in Acts, we see this miracle has taken place. And you don't get a more powerful firebrand who only speaks louder in the face of adversity than Peter. That is the power of God to transform. Praise the Lord for it. Thirdly, this morning, theological truth illustrated by Peter's denial. The Word of God has attested the captive will of man. And the third theological truth is the wrath of God atoned. Or the atoning wrath of God, you could say. We've mentioned several times, Jesus' three times repeated prayer indicates to us what is about to take place earlier in the passage. Verse 39, Jesus prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is this cup? It's a picture of a chalice, as it were, of poison. An analogy I've used, an allegory that R.C. Sproul in a children's book rightly used to describe a picture, a metaphor of what Christ would endure. He would take this poison cup, the judgment that our sin deserves, the, the, deserve, the wrath condensed into this small package as it were, but every bit as potent as every sin proportionally declared it to be, that is, God's justice satisfied for each and every transgression of His holy law is all compressed into this cup that He is about to take to His lips. So heavy, so difficult, so agonizing is the thought of taking this cup to His lips that Christ prays three times if there be any way that it would pass, that the burden would fall somewhere else rather than on his soon-to-be-torn and shredded shoulders, soon-to-be-pierced brow, soon-to-be-scorned consciousness. Christ is praying that it be removed. When the answer from the triune testimony in the communion of the Father to the Son is, you alone can bear the cup for my righteous purposes and the atonement of my people, Christ is resolved to go to the cross. And so he takes the cup to his lips. He takes the cup to his lips for Peter. He takes it to his lips for the other disciples. He takes it to his lips for you and me. If you are in him today, and this is what is going on as we read, you might ask yourself, atonement for what? Peter's sin is featured. At this moment, as we've identified and, and documented, Peter's sin is laid out. It serves as a case in point. As Christ is bearing the weight of God's wrath, we see exactly an example of what he is bearing the wrath for. He's bearing the wrath for deniers like Peter, deniers like you and me. 
Notice the despicable nature of Peter's sin. It's a downward spiral denial, if you will. It starts out with a misleading phrase. I do not know what you mean. He's feigning confusion, diverting. He's disassociating himself in this sly statement so that he doesn't have to answer for his Lord, be associated with him, and then implicated in Christ's own crimes. The exact opposite of what we've recently read in Hebrews 10. Do you remember Hebrews 10? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, and you went to prison as you were associated with those who had come under the condemnation and false charges of the powers that be. Peter was not willing to do so, and it was Christ himself that was standing at the bar. Christ himself on trial. He feigns this confusion. Then it grows worse, verse 72. He Next, he denies it with an oath. An oath includes this vow, this statement, that increases the emphatic nature of what you claim and wishes harm upon oneself if it were not true. Peter is asking for judgment to fall on his head if what he is saying is wrong. Why does God spare that judgment? Why does he not condemn Peter to the own curse he called upon himself? Peter invoked a curse on himself and swore. At this point, he's using language to identify with the world so that they think under this disguise he's not identified with Christ so that he can escape whatever harm they might wish upon him. He curses himself. God does not pay attention to the curse that Peter invokes upon himself. But in his great mercy, in his manifest grace, he saves Peter. He grants him regeneration. He does not bring the judgment upon his head that Peter himself asked for. Brothers and sisters, you and I in our sin, we ask for the judgment of God. In our blatant disregard for the truth that is inexcusable and unavoidable, even in creation itself, all men wish a curse upon themselves in their sin. But for those whom Christ has set his love upon, and for whom his blood was shed, and whose love reaches out to them before they love him, for them... He does not listen to the curse that they invoke upon them, but instead takes that curse to his lips and drinks it down. That is what's going on. Matthew Henry says it this way, None but the devil's sayings need the devil's proofs. He will not be restrained by the third commandment from the mocking of his God. In other words, Matthew Henry is saying that in this act, Peter is taking the Lord's name in vain. He will not be kept from the ninth commandment from deceiving his brother. In other words, unrestrained by the command, do not bear false witness. Cursing and swearing suffice to prove a man no disciple of Christ, for it is the language of his enemies thus to take his name in vain. Peter has adopted the language of Christ's enemies, taking his name in vain, bearing false witness, breaking the commandments. Yet this is what was atoned for in Christ's own blood. Consider the poison cup this morning. Christ is struck and the sheep are scattered. Peter and company, consider this thought. Peter and his comrades contribute to the deferred judgment of their own sin in their abandonment of Christ. 
In other words, when Jesus has no friends left, when they scatter, when they do not support Him, when they do not testify on His behalf, when they do not stand with Him, when they aren't willing to suffer for His name, when they run away, when they deny Him, when they do so, that adds to the cup that Christ Himself takes. And when He drinks it, it is the bearing of the wrath of God for the sin of the sheep that's scattered. When Jesus prays three times that the cup may pass from Him, understand in part what filled that chalice, that cup of divine wrath. It was mixed with a three times denial by His closest of confidants and the scattering of the rest of His disciples. And this, because He took that cup to His lips, this very act is why it is possible that John 21 gives us a happy ending to this story. And in closing this morning, turn there with me if you would. Commentators have noted the corresponding parallels between the passage I'm about to read to you and the denial of Peter. Peter denies Christ three times, and three times Christ asks him a particular question and reinstates him as a disciple. Listen to these precious words. And listen, as you're listening, remember, it is because Christ drunk the wrath of everything he endured, including Peter's denial, that he purchased what he is offering and delivering and miraculously granting Peter in these moments. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In this question, it likely could refer to, do you love me more than you love these others? It could refer to, do you love me more than you love this vocation? Yeah, Peter as, considering Peter as a fisherman. The point being, am I your priority concern? Do I compel the sum total of your affections? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, Jesus, said to him, feed my lambs. He, Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He, Jesus, said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Listen closely, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. A phrase that summarizes the brash, impulsive, self-willed attitude of Peter before his heart was changed. But when you are old, Christ goes on to say, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he, Jesus, said to him, Peter, 
follow me. After Jesus paid the necessary cost for Peter's reinstatement as an apostle and granted to him the grace that he did not deserve, it had such a transforming effect upon him that the new prophecy issued as to Peter and his heart and his conviction before the Lord and his ministry that soon unfolded and is recorded in the book of Acts is where one who had at one time at risk of life and limb, run away, scared, at the question of a mere servant girl, would now, in the face of persecution and martyrdom, go and speak boldly on behalf of his Lord in order that he might see the great privilege of one more soul coming into the kingdom of God, staring death in the face, if only he might be faithful and loyal to his Lord who died for him. This was the kind of death a martyr's death for confessing his loyalty to Christ that he would glorify God. What a manifest change. And after this, he said to him, follow me. And I can't help but think of that verse back in our text, Matthew 26, 58, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And later, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter could not follow in his own strength, ran away under these conditions. But when he was reinstated, our sovereign God granted to him grace that forgave all his sins and commissioned him to stand in the face of adversity by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and issued to him in his final re, uh, command, in his final adjournment, in his reinstatement, the original commandment, follow me. And so he did. Let us pray we would do the same. O oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful testimony of your Holy Scriptures that builds our faith as we read. That wicked, fearful, lazy, Sinners, distracted, lustful, angry, rebellious, ones such as us can be miraculously transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, I pray that you would extend your explosive grace unto us based upon the cup that you drank so that our sins might be washed away and you would grant to us a new heart and resolve that would stand in the day of adversity loyal to you, even unto death if you should call us to do so, that we might heed the call and always answer, yes, Lord, when you cry, follow me. Give us grace, Lord Jesus, to take to heart these words, that we might leave here, Lord, encouraged, enabled, and equipped to speak boldly of you where the words least likely to be popular in order that we might be found faithful Lord Jesus as Peter and the disciples were the long chain of those who are marked in Hebrews chapter 11 who trusted your words more than their circumstances fears their impressions their emotions their experience and saw and found you to be a faithful glorious sovereign powerful majestic conquering savior 
We thank you, Jesus, for these truths, these commands, this record, and these promises. May we bring glory to your name beyond this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.